This is Masters of Dispute Resolution on PodClips. Masters of Dispute Resolution is designed to provide those involved in the mediation process with the views of the most experienced and accomplished mediators and others experienced in the process. Through our discussions, you will gain insight into how to address and overcome difficult issues and achieve more satisfying results in mediation. Your host is Len Levy, mediator and arbitrator with ADR Services, Inc., a leading alternative dispute resolution provider. Lynn litigated complex cases for more than 30 years and has been a mediator since 1998 and is a member of the National Academy of Distinguished Neutrals. He has been recognized as a super lawyer in alternative dispute resolution each year since 2014. And now your host, Lynn Levy. Thank you, Daryl. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Masters of Dispute Resolution, a mini-seminar which will add tools to your mediation toolbox. We're brought to you by Lawyer Specific Insurance Brokerage, Inc., the National Academy of Distinguished Neutrals, and ADR Services, Inc. Uh, In this season, uh, as our regular listeners know, uh, we have changed up the format and uh, providing insights into mediation process through the power of storytelling. And in each episode, uh, you have heard and will hear stories about a conflict, the impact the conflict had on the lives of the parties involved, how resolution was reached, and lessons to be taken uh, from that conflict and its resolution. Now, many of the stories, uh, many of the details of the story you're about to hear have been modified to preserve the confidentiality essential to mediation while also conveying the essence of the conflict and its resolution. Uh, Joining me today is my good friend, Alan Saylor. Uh, Alan is... uh, in January of 2003, he launched what quickly became a a thriving mediation practice. Uh, He's always enjoyed the luxury of being an independent, full-time provider of mediation services. And as a mediator, he draws on his considerable prior legal experience representing plaintiffs and defendants in personal injury, product liability, employment, professional liability, insurance, and business litigation matters. During his career as a neutral, uh, he's mediated more than 3,500 civil cases and disputes with an exceptional track record. Those who have used Allen's services attribute his ability to consistently resolve matters to his legal analysis, his evaluative skills, and particularly his meticulous preparation and tenacious follow-up. I can honestly say, after having many conversations with Alan, that I know of no mediator who uh, prepares more thoroughly than my friend, Alan Saylor. Alan, welcome to Masters of Dispute Resolution, and it's such such a pleasure to have you on again. My pleasure as well, Len, and thank you very much for that warm welcome, and uh, um, uh, I appreciate uh, another opportunity to work with you on what I think is a great program uh, that you continue to do. Um, I'm here today to talk about a particularly tragic uh, scenario uh, that I mediated uh, some years ago. Um, I'm going to tell the story. I'm going to ensure the confidentiality 
Uh, so I changed the names of the participants who were involved in this, what actually was a horrific incident or accident. So let me take you through what happened. Uh, it's August 2012, approximately 8.20 in the evening. A 19-year-old defendant is driving his, his father's virtually new SUV. He's driving it on a surface street. He is headed to a friend's girlfriend's house, and he is therefore unfamiliar with the location. After passing several vehicles at a high rate of speed, he suddenly realizes he needs to turn right. He begins to execute the turn, but his car is traveling far too fast and he loses control of the vehicle. For those of you who are fam uh, familiar with the Falls Graph case, this case somewhat lends itself to a fact pattern like that. Um, his vehicle travels across the street and violently strikes a fire hydrant. Next, it collides with an upright cement ornamental lamp standard, and then a tree. And it finally causes the vehicle to come to a complete stop resting against the tree. The force of the first impact severed the fire hydrant and a torrent of pressurized water immediately began to project upwards and then cascade down onto the street. The gutters quickly could not keep up with the flow and the street began to flood. The second collision uh, knocked over the ornamental lamp standard, causing it to land in the street. The high voltage decorative ornamental lamp had yet to be converted to low voltage. Uh, the city had been doing that, but had not gotten around to this particular uh, ornamental lamp. The force of the impact with the ground exposed the lamp's wiring which quickly electrified the torrent of water that was escaping the fire hydrant and pooling in the street. Her TV reports there was as much as 700, 7,000, excuse me, volts pulsating through the water. Fearing that the driver might be seriously um, and unable, seriously hurt and unable to escape his vehicle, two brave Good Samaritans attempted to rescue him. Now, Joan Smith and her husband, John Smith, were driving by and they witnessed the accident. While he dialed 911, she exited the vehicle and selflessly ran toward the car to assist the driver who she assumed had been injured. It turned out he was just fine. When she stepped in the water, she was electrocuted. A 20-year-old Bill Watson had just arrived home from working out at the gym. He, his house was across the street from the defendant's car. He suddenly heard a quick succession of very loud noises and ran outside to investigate. He did so so quickly uh, that he was barefoot and wearing only his gym shorts. He, he saw Mrs. Smith lying in the street and he ran toward her. He abruptly stopped when he realized that she was lying on top of a live electrical wire. As he turned, he saw her husband desperately running towards her. He was able to physically restrain him before he too entered the water. 
In the midst of this chaos, Jill Jones, a young woman in her late 30s, also attempted to come to the driver's rescue. Like Watson, she happened to also live across the street. She observed Mrs. Smith lying in the street and she ran toward her to seek to assist her. Because she was still because he was still restraining Mrs. Smith's husband, Watson did not initially see Jones. When he instinctively turned around to make sure no one else was attempting to enter the water, he saw Jones. He shouted at her to stop, but she could not hear him because of the deafening noise. Jones' attention was focused on Mrs. Smith, whose body was lying on the ground. She therefore did not see Watson frantically waving at her to stop. As soon as she placed her hands on Mrs. Smith's body, she too was electrocuted. Both she and Mrs. Smith died at the scene. Mrs. Smith left behind her husband and their 10-year-old son. Jones, Jones was an only child. Her father had died several years earlier. She and her mother, plaintiff Susan Jones, were extremely close, and this tragedy was a crushing blow. A local radio station interviewed several of the responding police officers. One officer remarked, police officers and firemen are not trained to recognize these dangers and we would never uh, would have seen it coming, referring to the hazard the high voltage light presented. Had we attempted to rescue the driver by running through the water, my partner and I could have been the ones who perished instead of these two heroic good Samaritans. In a strange way, they took a bullet for us. Alan, let me just interject here. Um, we have a, a, a very difficult situation. Was the driver of the vehicle conscious at that time? Uh, the, uh, conscious, totally uninjured. Now, the, the two good Samaritans didn't know that at the time, and seeing, obviously, the, the aftermath of the hydrant shooting up in the air, the ornamental ramp on the ground, and the car up against a tree having its front end, uh, its hood smashed in, Mm. Uh, they, of course, anticipated that he was hurt, um, at least uh, Mrs. Uh, Smith did. And then when Mrs. Smith's body was lying on the ground, uh, the uh, other woman uh, assumed that she was in need of rescue. Alan, we're going to we're going to take a break right now. We're, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about the aftermath uh, of this uh, and what led up to uh, having this matter mediated. Um, I'm Len Levy. We're on Masters of Dispute Resolution. My guest is Alan Saylor, uh, extraordinary mediator. Masters of Dispute Resolution would like to thank ADR Services Incorporated, your partner in resolution, and its founder, Lucy Barron, for supporting this podcast. ADR Services is one of the leading providers of alternative dispute resolution in California. Leveraging technology to drive resolution, ADR Services is committed to dynamism in the face of growing client need and an ever-evolving legal climate. Now operating offices in all major legal markets of California, ADR Services provides unparalleled in-person and remote resolution services through its exclusive panel, comprised of more than 130 of the most distinguished and talented neutrals across the state, capable of handling challenging and complex mediations, arbitration, 
and other procedures in every field of law. When you seek the services of a neutral and you want results and satisfied clients, contact ADR Services, www.adrservices.com. Welcome back to Masters of Dispute Resolution. I'm Len Levy. I'm chatting with Alan Saylor, who is telling the tragic story of would-be good Samaritans who uh, paid the price for uh, for stepping in water with with a highly charged electricity running through it. So, uh, Alan, uh, when we left, you you were about to say, I think, uh, something about the, the police. Uh, the police's uh, officers' comments about the uh, incident? Yeah, I wanted to just add this. Uh, one of the officers who was interviewed uh, told the reporter that he was still haunted by having seen Mr. Smith on his knees wailing and pleading with God, please do not take her. So this is the kind of, uh, of scenario we had there. I mean, just absolutely tragic um, and, uh, um, you know, obviously avoidable if this uh, teenager had uh, not violated the law by recklessly speeding. Well, you know, one of the things that that we are dealing with when we have a a conflict that results in a lawsuit as as this is and uh, this did, and Alan will explain how that went. But uh, one of the things is that we're dealing with real human suffering and the impact on human beings and alan if you would go into who were the parties to the the lawsuit that was the aftermath of this we'll go on from there well obviously the driver was sued uh in addition to that uh the city was sued as well now the city was sued uh because of the involvement of the unineno light uh, the fire hydrant, uh, having been severed, uh, was not something that gave liability uh, or imposed liability on uh, the city. Uh, governmental immunity uh, basically uh, bars you from suing a, a city uh, for having placed a fire hydrant in a particular location. So if the case had simply been about, gee, you know, the fire hydrant should have been moved 50 feet downward uh, so the defendant would not have driven into it, uh, that case would have been dismissed as far as the city was concerned. Um, the plaintiff's attorneys, uh, particularly one, was very clever uh, and very tenacious in discovery uh, in terms of finding out through deposition testimony and also documentation uh, the, the consequences of this ornamental light being high voltage as opposed to low voltage. Um, this was a classic case of putting profit over safety. Um, and what I mean by that is the city had a program and was uh, replacing these lights. Um, but it was a long process. They had, you know, probably about 2,000 lights they needed to replace, although it was over a specific a lengthy period of time. And basically what they were doing was they were replacing the lights based upon maintenance issues as opposed to safety issues. So instead of saying, okay, uh, let's replace the lights in areas where there's high volumes of traffic, uh, which, uh, you know, they're more likely to be struck. Uh, you know, let's do it that way. Um, and these lights, this has happened in, in a number of instances that hadn't led to these kinds of tragic consequences, uh, mm -hmm. but they were on notice that cars 
for striking these lights. Um, and so that was the, the, the primary basis for liability. As we'll get into, um, the driver uh, had a limited amount of insurance coverage, uh, frankly, his father did. Um, so the only way to attempt to compensate the plaintiffs for what had happened was to pursue the, the city uh, for uh, compensatory damages. Okay, so the, 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 the lawsuit is filed and the parties uh, wisely choose to uh, go into mediation and further wisely choose Alan Saylor to mediate this. So <laughs> in, in, in approaching this, uh, as mediators, we have to think in terms of, all right, who needs to be there? What, what sessions, things of that nature. What did you, what was your thought process going into this about how to set up this mediation so that it should succeed? Well, one of the things that uh, counsel on both sides decided was early on that the case was primarily going to be about uh, the deal to try and work between the city um, and the plaintiffs. Uh, and so the discovery had been focused on that rather than the damages aspects of the case, um, because ultimately uh, the deal was also going to have to be, the settlement would have to be approved uh, by the council um, as well. So what we did was we decided that the first session should focus on negotiation between the plaintiff's counsel and the city. Uh, and the uh, plaintiff's counsel did, did two things that were very smart um, and helpful to getting the case resolved. First of all, um, they wisely agreed to make a global settlement demand. And they did so well in advance of the session. Um, I always highly recommend that that get done, whether we're dealing with a governmental entity, an insurance company, a corporate defendant, um, you know, oftentimes in big cases, or even in smaller cases um, these days, you really want to get demands ahead of time. Now, uh, the initial role then that I was to play was to facilitate a global settlement between the three plaintiffs in the city. We decided that the clients would not participate in this first session. Uh, they were understandably suffering from an irreconcilable grief, and all of us wanted to spare them as much as possible from what was going to be a very difficult and emotional day. Uh, we had to be particularly sensitive to the fact that one of the plaintiffs was only 13 years old and had lost his mother. Um, so we certainly didn't want to uh, have them there on, on two occasions and be sitting around during the first one. Now, the lawyers had excellent client control and had already obtained full consent to enter into a global settlement. So we all agreed that the second session would focus on the emotional component of the case, even more so than apportioning the settlement proceeds. Now, in advance of the first session, I spent a considerable amount of time behind the scenes, greasing the wheels, particularly assisting the city attorneys in justifying and obtaining what was obviously going to be a very substantial amount of money. This involved written and oral communications between myself 
the deputy city attorney and his superiors, uh, each of whom I had worked with before on numerous occasions, in some instances on large cases like this. So w- w- let me interrupt, Alan. Y- so you had rapport and you had credibility. Um, and I know you to be an evaluative mediator, uh, primary, your primary focus, although you certainly, uh, like all good mediators, mix in uh, a, a, a evaluative and, and more facilitative approach when needed. How much did being an evaluative mediator play into getting this settled? Surprisingly, not as much as you would think. Um, as I said, the plaintiff's attorneys had done a marvelous job of obtaining discovery that clearly pointed the finger at the city and made it very likely that not only were they not going to be able to get out on summary judgment, but also were going to lose the case if it went to trial. Um, so I was not in a position where I had to really focus on analyzing and evaluating the liability aspect of the case. It really, it really came down to, you know, how much is going to be needed to compensate uh, these folks for the tragedy that they had endured and were continuing to endure. So that was that was my focus uh, in terms of that. And again, um, you know, because I had rapport with both sides and the confidence of both sides, um, you know, it was relatively, I don't want to say easy, but uh, the process, uh, you know, I was able to facilitate that so that by the time we, we arrived at the first session, we had a pretty good idea of where the case was going to settle uh, in terms of a global resolution. Um, in a sense, I had done the first session before the first session, um, because first I made sure that there was going to be, you know, a sufficient amount of money. Um, and ultimately, we, you know, negotiation, obviously, but within a very a tight window. Okay, well, we're going to take a, a, another break. And when we get back, we're going to, I think, primarily focus on the impediments and things that you needed to overcome uh, in order to resolve this matter. We're on Masters of Dispute Resolution. I'm Len Levy. I'm chatting with Alan Saylor. We'll be back in a moment. Most attorneys need professional liability coverage, but very few are professional liability experts. And there are so many options when it comes to legal malpractice insurance. How do you know how much coverage you need? What should your policy limits be? What if you've had a past claim? You shouldn't have to take time away from helping your clients to research professional liability coverage. And with lawyer-specific insurance brokerage on your side, you don't need to. Their professional liability experts shop California's leading insurance carriers to find your firm the right coverage at the best price. Lawyers Pacific founders Al and Debbie Hernandez have over 50 years combined experience working with the highest rated providers of lawyers professional liability insurance. So trust the brokerage with access to over 40 carriers in California to find a cost-effective malpractice insurance solution for your firm. Go to LawyersPacific.com and click Request a Quote. Welcome back to Masters of Dispute Resolution. I'm Len Levy, and we're chatting with Alan Saylor. Uh, we were talking about a multi-session mediation and uh, Alan's preparation for that mediation. Uh, and um, now we're going to be getting into 
the emotional second session of that mediation. Alan, please take it away. Okay, let's deal with the second session. So from a technical standpoint, that session was intended to result in an apportionment of the settlement proceeds among the three plaintiffs. Um, their lawyers had reached a tentative resolution in terms of the actual uh, global amount. And there was little, if any, concern that the clients would not follow the recommendations of their counsel. Nevertheless, under the circumstances, we chose to meaningfully involve them in the process. Now, I rarely hold a joint session, but counsel and I agreed that in this instance, it was likely to be cathartic and very helpful to the process. Uh, the time-honored adage that sometimes terrible things happen to very good people could not have been truer in this case. Uh, I, I really was just struck by the fact how remarkable everybody involved in this case was from the standpoint of, of the decedents and their loved ones and survivors. Uh, it truly was a case where uh, terrible things had happened uh, to these wonderful people. Plaintiffs, as I said, were just incredible human beings and had powerful stories to tell. Each was going to tug at the heartstrings of a jury. Since the litigation to that point had only focused on the liability issues, the plaintiffs had not been deposed. I decided it would be very helpful for the city's lawyer to observe the joint session because it would help him and his superiors persuade the council to prove the settlement. And plaintiff's counsel was totally on board with that. Uh, we gave each plaintiff, including the boy, as much time as they wanted to tell us about their lost loved ones and the impact the loss had had on their lives. I encouraged storytelling. At my suggestions, suggestion, the attorneys had asked their clients to bring photographs with them depicting them and their loved ones. While we looked at the photographs and listed to them speak, I can truly say there was not a dry eye in the house. First, though, we dealt with the understandable anger that the plaintiffs had for this teenage driver who had recklessly and needlessly uh, caused the death of their loved one. Unfortunately, his father only had $300,000 in automobile insurance coverage, and uh, the uh, father was only responsible under the vehicle code in this instance uh, for uh, $15,000. Uh, there was a $300,000 policy limit, which the plaintiff's counsel had radically accepted uh, from the auto insurance company. Money was never going to bring their loved ones back. I reiterated the empty chair, empty pocket concept that their attorneys had already explained so that the uh, plaintiffs fully understood why the driver was not participating in the session. Uh, counsel had determined in advance that none of the plaintiffs were interested in a written apology from the driver, and we certainly did not want to risk having him and or his father attend the session. At the end of the day, I felt we had given the plaintiffs a small measure of comfort um, 
by, um, you know, having gone through this process and uh, uh, feeling that people had listened to them uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't all about the money. The difficulty in in emotional cases such as this, uh, or one of the difficulties, I should say, is the fact that money and and this type of loss are are, are they, they don't translate. Money for pain and suffering doesn't translate really. Uh, it it but the and and just simply the payment of money doesn't necessarily heal. It, as a matter of fact, it may not heal at all. In this particular instance, did you feel that the parties, after the at the end of the session, had a change in attitude? Uh, and and if so, what was that change? You know, I don't know if they had a change in attitude. Um, I think they appreciated the fact that we had made this process. Um, about them and their loved ones, that we had uh, uh, painstakingly taken steps to make sure it was about them and really not so much the money. Um, I uh, uh, and I, I think they really appreciated that. You know, as far as the money, that was left to the lawyers, financial advisors, structured settlement brokers to concern themselves with after the settlement was approved uh, by the city council, which it ultimately was. Um, so, I mean, I, I can truly say that uh, I think how we handled this gave them some degree of closure, certainly with respect to the litigation process. Um, I can tell you that at the close of the session, there were many hugs exchanged and more tears flowed. Uh, frankly, this is one of the most poignant experiences I have had as a mediator and one of the most rewarding. It demonstrates that oftentimes we as mediators have to step out of our role as an evaluator and negotiator to deal with the emotional anguish the parties sometimes bring to the table. And that was certainly true here. And you, you anticipated this going into it uh, and set up the session. Uh, I think you said the, the, the purpose of the session was in it was was known to the parties in advance and and that also reflects on your preparation and your ability to foresee those types of emotional um emotional impediments that might exist if if you just threw these parties into a session and said Oh, okay. Oh, by the way, now I want to have a a, a joint session. The, the result would not have been the same. Well, first of all, I want to give credit to the lawyers involved here. So I can't totally take credit, nor would I want to. Um, the way they handled this from the start all the way through the finish uh, really was extremely helpful to getting this done. Uh, certain lawyers, you know, would have been totally focused on the money. Um, would not have been thinking much about their clients, um, and the opposite was certainly the case here. So, you know, they made, they were as instrumental in getting this case resolved 
and uh, dealing with their clients' emotions uh, and trying to make this process uh, as, as least something. So I have to say that. The fact is that, you know, monetary compensation here was, uh, you know, not really the goal uh, in the second session. Uh, you know, it was really focused on that. Well, that, you know, th- this is this is a, uh, a a very good illustration, it seems to me, of attorneys actually paying attention to advancing their clients' interests in litigation, uh, and the, the the litigation process would not have provided the same. Uh, if this went through a through a jury trial, the jury would have given the verdict. Here's a number. Um, they would have been put up on the, on the stand, gone through it all, um, and then left it up to the jury. Um, and th- the idea of being listened to and being able to uh, share the experience that the, there, were, there were two basic plaintiffs, right? So th- being able to share it with each other. Um, was seems like it was cathartic. Yeah, I think so. I I think one of the things here was, uh, as we talked about before, you know, they were never going to put their grief aside. That was going to be something that was going to be with them for the rest of their lives. But I did feel that they received closure here because they knew it was over, um, and they could you know go on their li- go on with their lives. Um, you know, the money was going to be substantial in terms of making their lives better uh, from a financial situation and from the standpoint of, you know, what they were going to be able to do. Um, But, you know, had we not resolved this case, let's assume that the preparation uh, had not, that foundation not been laid. Let's assume we had different lawyers involved. There are any number of circumstances that could have circumvented the resolution of this case. The case would have continued to trial that would have taken quite a lengthy time. Uh, there was always the prospect for appeal. So these folks would have been living with this case for quite some time. Um, and I don't think they would have gotten the emotional closure uh, that they received as a result of the session. And I think they would have had to sit through many days of trial. Uh, and it just would have been a real ordeal with them, uh, for them. Right. And, uh, I also thought, you know, the result was very fair. Uh, could they have done better at trial? Sure. Um, but I think, you know, the, as I said, the result was, uh, from a compensatory standpoint, uh, you know, a really, really good settlement. Okay, we're, we're going to be taking our final break, and we'll be back with some more takeaways from this mediation session and this story of a tragedy befalling Good Samaritans. We'll be back In a moment, I'm Len Levy, and I'm speaking with Alan Saylor on Masters of Dispute Resolution. Masters of Dispute Resolution is sponsored by the National Academy of Distinguished Neutrals. NADN is the premier invitation-only association of civil mediators and arbitrators in the United States, with members in every state of the nation. Only experienced ADR professionals who are widely acceptable to local plaintiff and defense firms are invited to join the Academy's roster. The Academy's website, nadn.org, 
is the most widely visited neutrals database in the world today, with over 40,000 law offices, insurance companies, and corporations visiting our free website annually. Firms can search for neutrals by many criteria, including location, case expertise, qualifications, language skills, and most NADN members also publish their available dates, calendars, online, making NADN.org the go-to website for law firms wishing to schedule appointments online with their preferred mediators. For more information, please visit www.nadn.org today. Welcome back to Masters of Dispute Resolution. I'm Lynn Levy. We're chatting with Alan Saylor. And as we enter our uh, final segment of this particular episode, um, the thought occurred that oftentimes mediation will result in accomplishing things that trials just don't give you. And Alan... Could you comment on that, please? One of the things we talked about during the second session was what uh, we could do uh, from the standpoint of arranging some non-compensatory resolution of this. And uh, uh, we talked about this during the session. And after the city council approved the settlement, uh, the city posthumously honored the decedents uh, for their bravery and citizenship. Um, and I think that meant a lot to the plaintiffs. Um, you know, it was further uh, a further demonstration uh, how much uh, their loved ones had uh, risked their own lives, multiple, lost their own lives to save other people who they didn't even know. And, and you know, something that's that's one of the things that w- when we go into trial, and I often say this when I'm mediating cases. Well, you know, y- your alternative is trial. You can have a jury tell you who wins, who loses, how much gets paid. Period. End of story. Um, and um, in the meantime, you get the opportunity to have uh, very often in trials. Uh, uh, if it's a two-week trial, it's two weeks of each side calling the other a liar uh, very often. Uh, so not the most fun recreational activity, so to speak. Uh, in this, contrast that with what you accomplished in in this. And you gave credit to, uh, to the attorneys. Uh, very often, attorneys will enter mediation with the idea uh, that they don't, it seems like they don't have the idea of the difference between trial advocacy and mediation advocacy. Well, one of the things here, uh, if this case had gone to trial, it would have been the role of defense counsel to attempt to control the value of the case, what the jury would come back with. And in order to do that, you have to do it in a careful way. Skilled trial lawyers uh, you know, oftentimes accomplish this. But the goal of the defense in this instance is to try to put a cap on the amount the jury is going to award. And while you don't attack, obviously, the the relationship between the loved ones and the decedents, you do have to do things uh, to try and, you know, minimize the relationship uh, and other things to uh, rein in the, uh, the, the jury in terms of the verdict. And that can be very, very uh, difficult for the plaintiffs to hear. 
And no matter how much that's explained to them that that's the role of defense counsel, that's a difficult pill to swallow. So we avoided that. And I also think that was a, uh, a significant um, a goal in what we achieved. As far as, as far as the lawyers go, um, you know, they were instrumental here, as I, as I said. Uh, other lawyers could have looked at this and said, you know, I think I can get a heck of a lot more than the city was you know, ultimately willing to pay. Uh, that may or may not have been true. Only a trial would have, would have told that. Um, but, you know, lawyers that were just focused on the money, uh, there were some phenomenal themes here based on the facts that the plaintiff's lawyers uh, would have relied upon from a, a strictly uh, plaintiff's trial lawyer uh, standpoint, um, you know, this is the kind of trial that you, you know, you really want to get a jury to, to hear. Um, but I think in this instance, the lawyers didn't just look at the amount of money uh, that they were going to put in their clients' pockets, the amount of money they're going to put in their pockets. I think their focus was on uh, doing the best job they could for their uh, clients, not only from a financial standpoint, but also dealing with the loss, uh, the grief, uh, the tragedy, and helping these people to a certain uh, extent, uh, you know, get get beyond, uh, you know, where they were when we started the process. And again, I think that was something we accomplished. Um, I was told afterwards, uh, you know, some weeks afterwards by one of the plaintiff's lawyers, uh, that his clients uh, so appreciated how the session had been handled. Um, and that was in no small measure a result of the lawyers, uh, you know, preparing their clients, uh, you know, dealing with this ahead of time. You know, you touched on a couple of things, Alan, that, that um, I think uh, many mediators are afraid of joint sessions. Many attorneys are even more afraid of joint sessions. The idea of keeping an open mind about what can be accomplished in joint sessions, I think is, is, important, is an important takeaway here. But even more, the preparation, the parties take away the uncertainty of, oh my God, we're going to be in this room and it's going to be, uh, it, 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 it's going Confrontational. to. Confrontational. Yeah, right. So, so what the preparation that you did, comment on that. What, what, what well, I, look, I'm not a proponent generally of joint sessions. I rarely do them. Hmm. Um, when I do a joint session, it's always about, is this going to lend itself to a resolution? Um, I always found putting lawyers in a room and having them tell you about the case in front of one another, and oftentimes with the clients pre uh, present, is about as counterproductive uh, as you can get. Um, so that's just something I would not do. Um, what I do do from time to time, and this case was no exception, is if I feel uh, getting parties and lawyers together is going to help uh, the defense uh, get the money that's needed to resolve the case, whether it uh, is a claims adjuster, uh, meeting the plaintiff for the first time, seeing the injury up front, you know, up close as opposed to photographs, 
those are situations where you do a joint session. But again, it's not a joint session in the truest sense. It's a joint session where you're bringing people together on a very controlled basis uh, to bring about a resolution. So that's, that's really my view of joint sessions. I think, frankly, uh, some mediators, I don't think this happens as much today, but certainly when I started out, some mediators were somewhat lazy, they didn't prepare, uh, and they wanted to hear from the lawyers, hey, what's this case all about? What are the arguments? What are the facts? What's the law? And I don't think they really focused upon the damage that could potentially do to the resolution process. Well, it 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 can, and I I am like you, Alan. I, I rarely rarely use joint sessions. There are certain types of cases uh, where joint sessions uh, in in some form take place. Uh, for example, in a construction case, very often I'll have joint session with uh, with experts. Um, and and that helps drill down on where the true difference of opinion might be. So if, just one example. Yeah, I think that's a very good instance. Where, and, where and, and, and sometimes exchanging information uh, can be facilitated with joint sessions. Right. But, but springing on a, well, gee, you know, uh, I think uh, it might be a good idea to have a joint session. Well, for, for what purpose? What's going to be discussed? What's the, is there going to be some sort of an agenda? Uh, you know, just throwing the parties together and see what happens. There was a a, a, a book that, um, uh, that was written by Ken Cloak called Mediating Dangerously. Yeah, I've read it. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it, I think Ken, it, 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 at that time especially, was, was a big, big uh, a proponent of joint sessions. Well, um, Ken's in the pantheon of, of uh, uh, you know, mediators, so I wouldn't put myself in that category. And, uh, I well, love the title. Of, I love the title of that book. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think there are very few mediators that can pull that off. Um, Lee J. Berman is another one that comes to mind um, mm-hmm. as far as that goes. But, I, you know, you raised a good point with construction cases. You know, if you've got a case that there's not emotions involved, it's just about the, you know, the legal aspects and the money, um, you know, and, and you don't have parties really involved. Um, you're not going to bring the pool contractor into a mediation session to have him, you know, listen to why he's responsible. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's an aspect of it. But when you've got emotions uh, you know, running high, uh, joint session is, is just not the way to go. Well, it, they they can they. I, I will tell you, there's uh, a, in one of my prior uh, prior episodes. Uh, listen, listen to Doug Knoll. Um, there's another view uh, that you might want to might want to hear. But look, we're we are out of time, and and Alan, this has been a fascinating and very very enjoyable session. I always enjoy talking with you um we we've known each other for many many years and i i want to thank you again for for coming on the show it's always my pleasure Len, and, and i will admit to the fact that we've known each other for far too many years at this point <laughs> yeah but, uh, but it's it's always been a pleasure and i i count you as a good friend and i again really appreciate your me this opportunity to speak to people. 
Well, thank you. And, and Alan, the best way to reach you is through your website? Yes, alansailor.com. Um, you can find my credentials, uh, my CV on there, uh, my fee schedule, and uh, a calendar page as well uh, that people seem to enjoy, which allows you to see my availability and also the book sessions online so you don't have to go through right. uh, an endless number of emails or telephone calls to get a session scheduled. Well, thank you. Thank you again. And thank you, Daryl Wayne, uh, engineer and producer. And I'm your host, Len Levy. This is Masters of Dispute Resolution on podclips.io, powered by Infogen Labs, Inc. I hope you will continue to enjoy the stories we bring you. And in the meantime, stay well, keep listening, and remember, peace of mind is enhanced when conflicts are resolved. If you wish to contact Len Levy, you can reach him through his email at lslevy at advservices.com, through Len's website, lenlevymediate.com, telephone him at 818-903-5562, or contact his case manager at ADR Services, 213-683-1600.